We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 if you want to open your Bibles there. 1 Samuel chapter 24. Title of the message this morning is Zombie Apocalypse. (laughs) Zombie Apocalypse. Look, anybody who's ever watched a zombie movie, you know the drill. There's one central truth about zombies, and that is that they keep coming back. They are relentless. You can, you can shoot them, you can blow them up, you can run them down with a car, and, and you know, there they are in the next scene. It's like, hey, it's me again, here to kill you and eat you. You know, that, this, is, this is the truth about zombies. Now, when it comes to David, and we come now to the next scene in David's life, what we're going to find out is that King Saul is his zombie, man. He just keeps coming back. He's like the, the ever-ready buddy or whatever, you know, the Duracell, what is it? And anyway, he just keeps coming back, you know, he's there and he's there and just relentless trying to kill David over and over and over again. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago where we left off, we, we left off with David at the hill uh, of uh, Hakala. And what had happened was that David, God protected him and he, and he allowed him to have refuge from Saul because, again, Saul's relentless. And so he gave him a season of refuge where he, he was hiding in the cave of Adullam. And what happened was the prophet Gad spoke to him and told him, hey, listen, you need to go really into the land of Judah, which was, you know, that's Saul's backyard. So it doesn't make sense on the, on the surface of it. It's like, well, God just gave you a place of refuge. Why is God now calling me to go back into the land of Judah? Well, God knows what he's doing. And basically, God knew that the Philistines were going to come and that they were going to uh, attack uh, the people of the town of Keilah, which is a border town in the land of Judah. And Saul wasn't going to do anything about it. Saul's supposed to. He's the king. He's supposed to protect his people. But Saul is so preoccupied with killing David that, that he's not taking care of them. And so not only are these, these guys coming into this border town and attacking them, but they're threatening to steal all their crops uh, and to steal really their, their seed for the next year's crops. So there's a lot of stuff at stake. So God moved David strategically into a place where he could do something about it. And we see right there so many things. We see the hand of God and him protecting the people. We see God, you know, working through who is going to be the true king of Israel, David, who's got a heart for the people and is going to care for the people and so on. So he's like, well, I can't count on Saul doing this. I'll move David there. So David moves there uh, into the land of Judah near the, the city of Keilah. And goes and delivers them, protects them, saves them. And as a fine, how do you do? The people of Keilah turn on him and they go rat him out to, to Saul. We can't be too hard on them. We understand that, you know, that Saul had, had been in the, the priests of Nob when Saul even suspected that they had crossed him. He killed them all. He went into the town and he killed, you know, man, woman, and children, everybody there in, t- in the town. So the people of Keilah, they're like, we, you know, we don't want Saul to come do that to us. So thanks, David, for saving us and all. But, <laughs> hey, he's over here. So... David's like, great, you know, God is, are these people are going to, are they going to deliver me up? God's like, yeah, they're going to deliver you up. He's like, is Saul going to come? Yeah, he's going to come. So David's like, okay, I'm going to get out of Dodge. So David gets out and, and Saul calls off that attack. But then David goes into the, to the area of Ziph and the Ziphites do the same thing. They turn on him, they sell him out. And so now, I mean, Saul is just relentless. He's just continuing to, to attack and to attack and so where we left off was David, um, there, he's, he's at the hill of, of Hakala in the area of Ziph, and what happened was when they sold him out, Saul came, his, his troops split into two parties, they're closing in on him there at that hill, and then God miraculously delivers him. Word comes to Saul, hey, the, the Philistines are in the land, they're attacking, and Saul calls off the attack on David, goes back, and now David miraculously escapes. But, zombie apocalypse, man, he's back again. And that's where we pick it up in, in chapter 24. Saul is back. Now, as we get into this, here's what I want to say. The big idea of the message today is that just as David had a relentless enemy in King Saul, so too you and I have a relentless enemy in Satan. 
that he is relentless and he will attack at every turn. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil prowls around, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And what we're going to see today is that Satan's attacks are persistent. We're going to see that Satan's attacks typically unfold in the context of our relationships. And we're going to see that Satan's attacks are only thwarted when we turn the matter over to God. All right, first point, Satan's Satan's attacks are persistent. Write it down. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul, zombie apocalypse, took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel. This is the army rangers of Israel. This is the, the, the Navy SEALs of Israel. He's taken the best of the best, 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. David's in a place called En Gedi, the wilderness of En Gedi. And En Gedi is a canyon that you can go to today. It runs westward in barren territory that's surrounding the Dead Sea. And, and this canyon runs up the hill, and there at the top of that hill, there is a spring that feeds a creek. And it still flows today. And so what you have is all of this barren land, but then you have this one canyon, which is just lush and, and green and fresh water flowing through it. And, and then what you notice as you go up into that, ca- into that, you know, that, that canyon there's, there's waterfalls, little pools of water, stream running through, and all the vegetation. And then dotting along on the hills on both sides, there's caves all over the place. And some of them are huge caves. You can get several hundred people in one of these caves, which David and his men are hiding in one of these. We'll see in a little bit. And so this provides David with exactly what he needs because Saul is attacking relentlessly and he knows it's only a matter of time before he comes. So here's a place where in a desolate land he can have shelter in the caves. They can have water. Uh, they can, the fresh, abundant source. They, they, there's, there's food and vegetation, you know. So not only the animals come to drink and there you go, there's dinner, but, but uh, the vegetation that grows and so on. Um, and... And by the way, if you're ever in a survival situation, that's what you need in that order. It's, it's shelter, first priority. It's water, second priority. It's food, third priority. Don't say you never learned anything practical in church. There you go. Uh, you get in a survival situation, take care of things in that order. Um, but David's got all these things. And not only that, but he's got a place for them to hide out. And it gives them a high vantage point for their scouts because you can see for a long way and you can tell when danger is approaching. And so David's going to need that because Saul is relentless, continues his attacks, and they know it's only a matter of time. Like I said, the Bible tells us that Satan is the same way. You look in the book of Job, it's interesting. Right there in the beginning in Job chapter 1, <coughs> God's up in, in heaven, and Satan shows up. He's like, where'd you come from? And Satan answers him, basically says, well, I've been walking to and fro all around the earth. Well, Peter, in the verse that we just read in, in 1 Peter 5, what was he doing walking around the whole earth? He's looking for who he can devour. He's looking for who he can kill, who he can, who, who he can mess with. And, and this is the, the picture of Satan that it's constant. For you and me, we, it would be so wonderful when you, you, know, you, you get attacked by the enemy and, and you get victory over something. And it would be so wonderful if when we got victory over something, it was, it was one and done. Wouldn't it be great? You know, and, and, and rather, what happens? Well, maybe you've had a situation, just throw out a hypothetical. You get, maybe you've had something where you've had this interpersonal conflict with somebody. And it's just been, you know, they just bug you to high heaven, you know? And it's just kind of, you find yourself mad at them, and you find your heart going into sinful places, and and all, and you endeavor, 
you know, spirit moves on you. I got to just forgive them. I got to turn them over to the Lord. And the Lord delivers you. He gives you victory. You're not carrying around all the baggage. You're not carrying all around all the weight. And then what happens? You see something on Facebook, some boneheaded thing that they did or they said, right? And it's all right back. You're all right back in the same place you were, right? You've been there? Tell the truth. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. You're like, I, I thought I had victory in this area. And the, and the Holy Spirit's right there. He's like, hey, what's the deal? I thought you forgave this person. You're like, I did. I did. But now look at what they did. They just did it again, right? And so what happens is, is we have those victories. God delivers us. And we're like, oh, it would be so great if I could live there. But it's a constant zombie apocalypse. The enemy just keeps coming back. And I had victory today, and tomorrow I'm living in defeat. You, we identify so much with the Apostle Paul. Lord, that that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. You know, who's going to save me from this body of death? And so we go through it over and over and over again. It's only when we go to glory to be with the Lord that we're going to have permanent victory. Welcome to the world of constant attacks. And then that's the thing. The attacks are persistent, and we need to realize that the attacks are persistent. Jesus was telling a parable in uh, Matthew chapter 25. He told a parable of the ten virgins. He said there was, there was five wise and there were five foolish ones. And that they had gone and they're, they're, they're seeking after the bridegroom. And, and what happens then is the, the bridegroom doesn't come when they expect him to come. And so they all fall asleep. They brought their lamps with them. And, and he says that the wise virgins brought their lamps and they brought oil to, to, to add to their lamps. He says the foolish virgins didn't bring any oil for their lamps. And so what happened then is when the bridegroom was, was delayed according to their, their estimation and came at a time when they weren't expecting, they weren't ready for him. They all woke up hastily. They're all sound asleep. They wake up and they're like, oh, he's coming. We, we need to go. And so they, they go to trim their lamps. Well, the five wise virgins have oil to add to their lamps. They're able to trim their lamps. They're able to go. And the five foolish ones, they say to the, to the, one, to the wise ones, they're like, hey, give us some of your oil. And, and the wise ones, say, they, they say to them, get your own oil. If we give you our oil, we're not going to have enough for ourselves. You should have thought about this. You should have done this yourself. And, that, and the parable ends with the five wise ones being able to go into the marriage feast and the five foolish ones being shut outside. And there's a lot of lessons to learn from that, but one of the lessons that we take away from that is that these five foolish gals were operating on their own terms and on their own timetable. And, and a lot of the times when it comes to us as Christians and following after the Lord, we have to be wise. We have to understand that God doesn't operate on my terms and that God doesn't operate according to my timetable. You say, well, what's that got to do with the, with the situation at hand? Well, it's got everything to do with the situation at hand because the, the, the issue here is that the, the, what this parable is talking about is, is walking and living in such a way that, that you're, you're understanding, I'm going to go through situations and circumstances that I hadn't counted on, and I need to be alert, and I need to be ready, right? Um, and, and sometimes God is going to allow me to, to have to wait or to endure or to, you know, be delayed. I think God's going to do this, that, and the other. This is how God should operate. It should happen this way at this time in this circumstance. And then God goes, oh, guess what? You got to endure with this difficult person at work for six years. You know, you got a boss that just makes you want to quit every single day. And this is where you're at. And you're like, good grief. Why am I going through this? Why do I have to endure this way? And and we can totally get off track. Or we can get to the place to where we are, are like these foolish virgins where you know we have in our mind the way we think it's going to go and when it doesn't go that way, what happens is that we just we go to sleep and we're completely unprepared. Ta- Paul talked about this um, in, in Ephesians chapter 5. He, he, he says there in Ephesians chapter 5, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And then he goes on to talk about how we're, we're, we're to be circumspectful in how we walk. 
you know, and, and, and that, that walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. He said a very similar thing to the Thessalonians. He said, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And it's the same attitude that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, where he basically says, there's a lot of people that sleepwalk through life. There's a lot of people that sleepwalk through life. You've heard the saying, three, there are three types of people in the world. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who say, what happened? Right? And, and those, the people who say, what happened, they're the ones that the zombies eat. They're the ones you're yelling at at television when you're, when you're saying, hey, he's right behind you, wake up, you know, and they're doing something boneheaded, they're doing something stupid. And we have to understand that we have an enemy and he every day wants to eat you up. He every day wants to attack you. And so what we have to realize and embrace is the fact that, guess what? Coming to Christ doesn't mean that God's going to, you know, save you from all of that stuff. Coming to Christ means that God, yes, you, you have the hope of eternal life, but God's going to allow you to be in situations and circumstances where you're pursued, where you're attacked, where you're maligned. We know in the, course, in, the, in, the, in the life of David that God's prescribed this. This is, this is medication that the physician has prescribed, which tastes lousy, but it's needful in David's life. He's, he is a man called to be king over all of Israel, but God's using a wicked king to, to sharpen him and to, and to get him to a place where he's prepared you know, to, to, to serve the Lord. So, so in our lives, we got to understand it is the zombie apocalypse. It is every single day. And every single day, we are going to be fighting. And listen, one of the things you need to understand about Satan's attacks, not just that he attacks, not just that he's relentless, not just that the things that you think you have victory over today, you're going to be fighting again tomorrow. Not, not just all of those things. Not just that he sets traps for you. He's very crafty. And so he'll set, a, he'll set a trap for you to walk into. And he studies you. He knows exactly how you are. He, does, he can't read your mind. can't read your thoughts. You know, he's not all-knowing. He's not on, all, omniscient, all-knowing. But he's a student of you. He knows exactly what buttons to work in your life. And it's not just that we understand all of that. But here's what we need to understand. One of the primary areas that Satan loves to attack is in the area of relationships. And that's what we need to, 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 to know, we need to understand. I won't ask you for a show of hands. I was debating whether I should, whether I should. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. But let me ask you the question, how many of you right now are dealing, you can keep your hands down, but how many of you right now are dealing with, a, with an, uh, an attack in a relationship in your life? And, and here's that, I've been a pastor 23 years, I'm 50 years old, I've been around long enough to know that, you know, motorcycle riders, two types, those that have been down, those that are going down, you guys, you know, same thing, there's those that have suffered a satanic attack in the area of your relationships, that you're, you know, you've suffered it in the past, you see it in your rearview mirror, you're suffering it in the present, it's right there in the cab of the truck with you, or you see it out the windshield, it's coming down the road. And so Satan loves to attack in this area of relationship, and that's what we have here in this chapter, is such a, an incredible picture of how he operates through our relationships to attack us. So our first point, obviously, that his attacks are relentless. Second point is that attacks typically occur in the context of relationships. Write it down. Attacks typically occur in the context of relationships, right? People, they attack us, they wrong us, they slander us, they attack our character, they take offense to something that we said or something that we did. It just goes on and on and on. Now, a sub-point to that, understanding that relationships are one of his specialties, the enemy's specialty to attack, that he attacks in this context, that, listen, there is a typical cast of characters in our relationship battles, okay? There is a typical cast of characters when we go through an attack on our relationship, okay? Uh, if, 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 you're, if you're producing a movie, you know, you, you got to have a script, 
and, and you put, you know, your scripts together. You got a story, there's a script, there's a screenplay, and it's all put together. And now what happens is you take that script and you, and you cast the different characters. You're like, well, this, this, you know, this movie calls for a villain and it calls for a hero and it calls for... And so what happens then is central casting gets a description of this character and they put it out. And so now people start coming to audition for all these different characters. Well, again... What happens here is that there are typical characters in our relationship battles that we can just count are going to be part of the ongoing problem. And, and there's three primary characters in our relationship battles. Here they are. The, there's aggressors, there's agitators, and there's allies. All right? And we see all three of these in our text right here. Now, who's the aggressor in this story? Saul. You've met him. We've seen him. He's been the aggressor pretty much from the beginning. He's had it in for David. He's, he's operating from a place of jealousy. He's fighting the consequences, really, of his own sin. But now, somehow, David's responsible for the consequences. As he suffers through, Saul, the consequences of his own sin that David is raised up, that God's hand is upon David. Why? Well, because David's the one that's doing what God wants, wants him to do. Well, Saul's jealous, and, and he just takes all of those consequences that he's suffering, and, and he's, he's like, well, you know what? I'm going to blame David for these things. It's, it's all his fault. Some of you are like, well, you just described my brother-in-law. That's, that's uh, you know, I've described a lot of people. Because there's, in our interpersonal relationships and in the attacks that we get, there are going to be aggressors in your life. There are going to be those people that just come at you. Come at me, bro. Well, they come at you, man. And they are, they are just wanting you know, to take you down. Now, that's the first character. Second character that we see in our text and that we have to deal with in Satan's attacks in our relationships are the agitators. Now, look again at verse 1 because here's where we see the agitators. It says, now it happened... When Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness in, in Gedi. Now, these right here, these are the agitators. These are the guys that want to throw gasoline on the fire. These are the kids in junior high that, you know, all they want to do is they want to see blood. They want to see you fight. They're the, they're the antagonizers. They're the, they're the ones that come to you and, and they're like, oh, you know, did you see? They know you're mad at someone. They know you've got a relational problem with someone. So they're like, did you see what they posted on Facebook? Did you see what they said about you? Did you see what that person did? You'll never guess what I heard. I heard that they, and they're just dumping gas on the fire. Why? Because they want to see a fight. They just, they just want to jump on and they want to be this aggressor that, that, wow, if somebody did that to me, I'll tell you what I'd do to them, right? And, and, and they're not doing us any favors at all. This, this is the role of the aggressor to, to agitate and to stir the pot. And when we have a, re, a relational conflict, you can be guaranteed that there's going to be uh, those, those, those people that are going to agitate. Not just the aggressor, but there's going to be people that agitate and go, oh, look, here's what's going on. Now, King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said this to his son. He said, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Now, hold that thought, and let's look at our third character here. We have allies. We see the allies show up in verse 3. It says, so he, speaking of Saul, came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs. That's a biblical way of saying he went to the bathroom. That's what's going on here, okay? And so Saul went in to attend to his needs and David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So, so what are the odds of that? You got this guy who's got to go to the bathroom. He's got 3,000 soldiers with him to protect him. But, you know, you don't take 3,000 people to the bathroom with you. You're like, I'll be right back. You guys just stay out there. I'm going to close the stall door kind of thing. And so away you go. You don't have an audience. This guy walks into the very cave where David and all of his men are. They're like, Whoa, what is going on? So 
Uh, verse 4, Then the man of David said to him, This is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'll deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Dude, he's got his chonies down around his ankles. I mean, there he is. I mean, take him out for crying out loud, right? And, um, <laughs> and uh, David arose, <coughs> and he secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Whew. So, the allies, here they are, right? And they're with, with David. And, and, you know, these are, these are David's buddies, right? Now, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between the agitators and the allies? Geography. Geography. Because here's the thing. The agitators, well, we look at da- as David's allies. I mean, he's our hero. We read the story and we're like all the people that are encouraging Saul to go kill David. Well, we're like, oh, those are agitators. Those are just, those are guys that are, look, they shouldn't be doing that, man. They, they, you know, and here they are. They're just trying to, you know, take out our hero. Okay, well, those agitators look at Saul. They're like, hey, he's the king. He's the anointed. David's the upstart. David's the, the one. So who are they? They're Saul. Really, you, you look at it from the opposite direction. They're Saul's allies, right? So, so, the, so in this story and in this context, the only difference between the agitators and the allies is whose side that they're on, right? Here's how I want you to understand it in your context, that, that when you have the enemy who attacks in your life and he starts stirring stuff up, and what does he want to do? He wants to see you fight. He wants to see you divided. He wants to see you at war with your brother, with your sister, with your, you know, he just wants to see division, right? And so what happens then is he starts messing and doing and, and shaking and all, and so then and you've got an agitator in your life, somebody that just has it coming, Saul's got it coming. I mean, you know, good grief. You leave the, you've stolen the guy's wife. You've stolen all his money. You've made him just miserable. He's destitute. He doesn't, and he's on the run. And what did he ever do to you? He was faithful to you. He served you. He fought your battles. And, and he, he's getting the raw end of the deal, David is. And so you go, well, you know, Saul's the nasty not guy and all that. And so, you know, to, to, to go to David and go, take him out, good grief. What are the odds this guy would have to go to the bathroom and he'd come, you know, <laughs> keep it, anyway, so he'd, he'd come here and you could take him out. So, so the, the, the issue that we have to understand is that really understanding this in the larger context Satan wants to attack. He's really crafty. He's really seeking to take us out. And he specializes in destroying relationships. And man, there's different characters that you can play. Now, the the application for you and me is that we've all done this. Really, you got to think about it. I mean, we've all done it. We've all been in a situation where we saw a friend of ours being wronged by someone and we were right there whispering in their ear, oh, you, you should have seen what they posted on Facebook. You should have seen what they said about you. You ought to take them out. I'm telling you, here's what you should say. Here's what you should do. You know, and we, we've, we, we're, we're all guilty. We played this role. See, we all see ourselves as the allies, right? We're the guy, you know, you, you watch a, a Western, the good guys wear white hats, the bad guys wear black hats, and we all see ourselves as a, we all wear a white hat. But the problem is, is there's nothing but black cats here, regardless of you're an agitator or an ally, because both of these sides are sinful. They're both encouraging men, these men to respond in a sinful way. For they're, because they're both dealing with the Lord's anointed. And, and, and so we need, to, we need to understand, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that's what God has called us to do. He's called us to be a peacemaker. If these guys were true allies to David, they'd be encouraging him to do the things that are going to bring glory and honor to God, not the things that are going to bring glory and honor to his flesh, right? And so they would be encouraging him in that way. Paul, writing to the Hebrews, he said this, he said, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. 
So I just ask you to take a walk with that. Are, are you in a situation with a friend where you've played the role of an agitator or an ally? And I would say either one is just a simple matter of geography. If you're encouraging somebody to do something that perpetuates a fight, that perpetuates a division, that, that is sinful in nature, then you have to be able to go, whoa, that, that is, I'm being used, I'm being played by the enemy. He's just cast me in a role for his bigger movie that it is the destruction of fill in the blank. So, so attacks typically occur in the context of relationship. There's a typical cast of characters, but also, not only is there a typical cast of characters in these attack on the relationships, but there's also, here's the second point, opportunities for vengeance in our relationship battles. There's opportunities that arise for vengeance and for us to take vengeance in our relationship battles. Here's the opportunity for David. Saul comes in to cop a squat. And you're like, okay, well, guess what? That, I mean, what are the odds that right there at that moment, you know, he would have to do the, probably the one and only thing that's going to separate him from his 3,000 select soldiers and put him, and he got, of all the caves that he could have gone to, he chooses yours. Right? And so, so what are the odds that that would happen? And it would be easy. And what I want you to understand, and I'm talking about this in the context of your relationship issues, and I, and I have no doubt that several of you have got somebody's face right now in mind. The person that you have interpersonal contact with. And what I'm hopeful now is that you're open to the idea that, guess what? Satan really would love to see this fight continue. He'd really love for me to continue with this anger and this bitterness and this resentment and this hurt and to, to be able to, you know. And so well, I'm hopeful that you're thinking in along in those terms, that you think you're considering, when have I played the agitator? When have I played the ally that encouraged sinful behavior? All of these things, but also... Do you recognize that things come gift-wrapped to you? You have an opportunity to take vengeance. And, and you, you, you think, gosh, this clearly, just as David's allies would say, this is an opportunity from God. I mean, look at, there he is, man. What do you want? He did everything but slit his throat for you. All you got to do is go do it. And it would be so easy for David to respond to that and go, yeah, this is an opportunity from God for me to take my enemy down. And he almost falls for it. He almost falls for it. He goes and he cuts the corner of Saul's robe off. Now that sounds innocent enough, but you've got to understand it in context. That robe is a symbol of his royalty. Now I don't know if you know, he's, he's got the robe on and David actually got that close to him to cut the robe off. I mean, he could have. Or he took the robe off, and so he got close, but, you know, he wasn't wearing it. I don't know the issue, but the robe itself is a symbol of Saul's royalty. Now, think about this. If you remember back in chapter 15, Saul and the prophet Samuel got into a conflict, because what happened was, God spoke to Samuel and said, I'm all done with Saul. Everybody out of the pool, he is done, he's disobeyed me, he set up monuments to himself, yeah, I anointed him to be the king, but I'm done and I'm going to appoint somebody else, so you go tell Saul that I'm taking my spirit away from him and that, that I'm going to choose somebody else to be the king. So Samuel shows up and he tells him, you know, you're all done. And so Saul begs Samuel, he's like, oh, please, just come with me and appear before my men. You know, I know that God's left me and I know he's going to take the kingdom away from me, but I want to look good in front of all the people. So would you just come with me? You know, you, there's, there's various ways that you achieve a good reputation. You either earn it, you buy it, you borrow it, you steal it. And he's trying to, you know, beg, borrow, and steal Samuel's reputation so that he can at least keep the charade going. Samuel's like, oh, you know, I'm not going with you kind of thing. And, then, and so he, he grabs after him and he tears Samuel's robe. And Samuel, seeing that he tore his robe, he uses it as his metaphor in Saul's life. And he says to Saul, and the Lord has torn the kingdom away from you. Super vivid picture. So David, when he cuts the corner of this symbol of Saul's royalty, there's a lot more to it. What David is saying is, this thing, this thing ain't yours. I'm taking it. I'm, I'm taking away this symbol of, of your royalty because we both know there's a new sheriff in town. His name's David. 
And so this is David going in that direction. If, you've, if you watch um, uh, Peter Pan, you know, Captain Hook, he always hears, when the crocodile's coming near, he always hears the tick-tock, tick-tock, because the crocodile took his arm, and he, and he as it were, he ate a clock. And so he's always hearing the tick-tock. So David cutting the corner of this robe off, that's the tick-tock. That's David going, hey, guess what? There's a new sheriff in town, and, you know, I'm taking this away from you. So David, this is the direction that he's going in, right? This is the opportunity for vengeance that he has. But, but what happens, it, it happened afterward, verse 5 says, that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And so David restrained his servants with these words, saying, look, I'm not going to, it's not going to be me against this guy. And so he, he restrains his servants with his words, and he did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave, and he went on his way. F.B. Meyer said this. He said, we sometimes, in conversation and criticism, cut off a piece of a man's character or influence for good or standing in the esteem of others. Ought not our hearts to smite us for such thoughtless conduct? Ought we not to make confession and reparation? In other words, he's saying, look, you know, we do this all the time. David cut the corner of, Saul, of Saul's robe off, but we, you know, we blast on Facebook, we tell all of our friends, if we think somebody's, you know, a jerk or they've wronged us or whatever it is, we, we malign people's characters all the time. Look, here's what you need to understand, because what we're talking about is these opportunities for vengeance that we have. And you will have opportunities for vengeance, but what you need to understand is, yes, that opportunity is from God in a sense... But it's not for David to take matters into his own hand. That's not the opportunity. And that's the big idea here. It's to leave matters in God's hands. It's to leave matters in God's hands. To be able to say, you know what? And David's going to say this. And the, Lord, the Lord decide between you and me. You know, I, I, David wants the, the, the promise that he has in his life to be fulfilled but he refused to try and fulfill God's promise through his own disobedience. Romans 12, 19, Paul said this. He said, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, sometimes you have a promise from God in your life. And you think, oh, because I've got this promise from God, then the ends will justify the means. And so I can live however I want to do. I can engineer situations however I want to engineer it so that I get the outcome that I want. You know, a, a husband might go, you know what? God wants me to be happy. He says so in his word. He wants me to have fullness of joy. And, you know, I think I married the wrong woman. And I'm not happy and I don't have a lot of joy. So, you know, God's promised me that, I'm, that I have an abundant life and that I should have fullness of joy. So, you know what? I'm going to trade this model in. I'll get myself another model so that I can pursue God's will for me to be happy and have fullness of joy. Now, we hear that out loud and we're like, that is, that's delusional. That is, that's not honoring to God. But a lot of times this is what we do. And what David would have been doing in this situation if he would have taken matters into his own hands and if he would have killed Saul, it would have been saying, hey, God promised me that I could have the kingdom, so all I got to do is kill the king and I get the kingdom. You see, and it's the exact same thing. So he needs to understand, well, this is an opportunity for vengeance, but if I take it, I take God out of the driver's seat and I put me in the driver's seat. Now, with that in mind, we go to our third point. Here it is. Attacks are thwarted. The attacks of the enemy in our life, they're thwarted when we turn the matter over to God. This is exactly what David does. Verse 7 is where we pick it up. So David restrained his servants with these words. He did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and he went on his way. David also arose afterward, he went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the King. 
All right. This is the guy that took his wife away from him, that took his home away from him, that took all of his money away from him, that took his position away from him, that has made his life a living hell. That face in your mind's eye, the person that maybe has made your life a living hell. And David says to this guy, I'm going to call him my Lord and King. What? Well, yeah, David's in this place where he goes, you know what, that's the position he's in. He's a dirtbag, but, but God's put him in that position. Here, you know, just, to, just to, to help you with a little application, you've got, maybe it's your boss who's in your mind's eye. And you're thinking, this guy is the most worthless loser in the face of the earth. He's made my life a living hell. And at the end of the day, you call him boss, sir. Right? And so David says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and he bowed down. And he, notice the text doesn't say he whispered under his breath, you dirtbag, losing, you know, loser, whatever. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Why, why, are, you, why are you listening to those people that, that, that are the, the antagonists in this situation? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. Even though he's sitting over there with his chonies around his ankle, and I could slit your throat right this minute, I'm not going to do it, because he, he belongs to God. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe, and <laughs> did not cut off your head, did not kill you, Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Highlight that, put an asterisk next to it, put a bookmark in this section of text. When the enemy tries to attack you and he goes after your relationships and you've got good cause to have anger, bitterness, resentment and take matters into your own hand and take the opportunities for vengeance, rather, let this be the cry of your heart and when you don't feel like it, say, God, help me to say this and help me to do this. My emotions tell me that right now this isn't true. My emotions tell me it would feel a whole lot better to slit his throat. But let the Lord judge between you and me. As the proverb of the ancient says, verse 13, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? <clears throat> a dead dog? A flea? David's like, dude, check, look at me. What kind of a threat am I, am I to you? You're the king of Israel. You can live in a palace. You do live in a palace. Why are you out here in the, looking after the likes of me? Therefore, let the Lord be judged, the judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. And so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice, and he wept. He wept. Why? Well, because Saul recognizes this guy's better than me. He's a good guy. He's probably at this moment ashamed of his behavior. He's probably grateful because he realizes just how close he really did come to death. And listen to the cry of his heart, verse 17. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him give it away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Look, when we turn matters over to the Lord, 
Sometimes that has the desired effect all by itself. When you could have taken somebody out and instead you extend grace and mercy and forgiveness and you just turn them over to the Lord, sometimes it has a desired effect on the person where they have this kind of repentance. Now, I wish it were permanent. This is the emotion of the moment and we're going to see that Saul turns back around to, you know, zombie apocalypse pursuing David and to the day he dies, Saul's trying to kill David. So this is going to be short-lived. But he says, I know the kingdom's going to be established in your hand. Verse 21, therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And so David swore to Saul and Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. So Saul says to him, hey look, he asked him for the same thing that, that Jonathan, Saul's son, asked David for. If you're here through the teaching and you know that basically the custom in this day, one king, uh, you know, succeeded another king, then what he would do to solidify his power is he'd kill everybody in that king's household so that nobody would, you know, uh, try and fight him for the throne. Quaint little custom that they had there. So also like, you know, that cute little custom that you got to kill everybody. Would you please not do that with me? David's like, yeah, I won't do it. That's fine. You know, grace on his part. But what's interesting here is it says, you know, here Saul seemingly has had a complete come to Jesus moment now because of David's grace that he extends. And yet it says Saul went his way and David went his way. Why? Why didn't David go back to Jerusalem? Why didn't David go back to his wife? Why didn't David go back to his home? Why did he rather stay in a safe place hidden away in the, in the wilderness, in the caves and all? Because he's smart. That's why. A lot of times you've got somebody, maybe you're estranged from, maybe they've been an antagonizer, an antagonist in your life, and you do your level best to forgive them, to turn them over to the Lord, to to do all you can, and maybe even there's a, a change of heart on their part. Okay, great. What you do now is you say, let's see some demonstrated fruit. You don't give them the key to your house. You don't say, hey, everything's great. Kumbaya, come on back in. You're like, okay, you know what? Like Reagan said to, to Gorbachev, trust but verify, you know? So it's okay, this is great, I welcome this, but I'm just not, you're not getting, I'm not just coming back like everything's hunky-dory. You got to demonstrate to me that your heart is true. So he's wise because Saul's heart is not true in this. Now, here's what I want to close with. And we close right now, but the attacks are thwarted when we turn the matter over to God. Notice that's exactly what David does. You know, the book of Romans hadn't been written yet and David didn't know the book of Romans, but he knew the truth of it. Romans 12, 21 says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David knew the truth of that. And and I'm asking you today, can you embrace the truth of that? For you, with uh, any relational rift that you've got, with any situation that you're going through where Satan has attacked, can you, like David, learn not only how to wait on the Lord, but can you also know how to wait for the Lord? Because, you know, the thing is, is that if David took Saul out, his fingerprints would be on it. You don't want your fingerprints on the stuff that you do in your life. You want God's fingerprints to be on it. I had a husband and wife in counseling, and um, the, the gal appreciated that she did not want her fingerprints on, on the, the decisions that her husband made. She wanted, she wanted God's fingerprints on it. My wife and I had a similar conversation. She said, she's sharing with me, she came to a place in in our marriage where she realized, you know, I realized my power that I could manipulate you and I could get you to go in a particular direction. And then I became aware of, well, gosh, if I manipulate him and he makes a decision because I've manipulated him, then the outcome of that decision is my responsibility. And she's a wise woman. She goes, I don't want that responsibility. So I want to rather encourage you to seek the Lord. I want to turn you over to the Lord. I want to pray the Lord would give you wisdom because at the end of the day, I want you to bear the weight of the decisions that are made. I don't want to bear that weight. I married a really smart woman. And so the thing is, you want to make sure your fingerprints aren't on it. That's what David's doing. He's like, I don't want my fingerprints on this. I want to wait on the Lord. Great wisdom because we've already established God's doing a work in David and it's God's sovereignly chosen to have Saul be this antagonist and had David go through everything he's going through because God's using Saul to mold and fashion David and to do the work that he wants to do in his life. And it's the same way with you. And I think about another Saul. Think about Saul of Tarshish, the Apostle Paul. 
when he was killing Christians, what if the disciples had a bunch of people, you know, allies in their court that were saying, you know, he's killing Christians and, you know, you guys know that God's anointed you to, to start the church and all and he's really making your life miserable, so why don't you kill him and then you could be done with him and you can get on with the Lord's work. Can you imagine what would have happened if, if that would have transpired? Well, because who Saul, yeah, he was killing Christians until he got saved radically by Jesus and became the Apostle Paul and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, planted churches throughout Asia Minor and all, and there in the book of Acts playing such a prominent role, the early church, and, and much of what we know as Christians and do as Christians is a direct result of the, God, uh, the work that God did in and through the Apostle Paul. See, thank God that the apostles' fingerprints weren't on that, but rather they said, we're, gonna, you know, let, we're just going to seek God. So, so if you've got a situation in your life right now, you, you really need to understand that God's will and his timing is essential. And you have to trust him in that. You want it to be his fingerprints. And that's what David does here. He turns Saul over to the Lord. Finally know that he didn't store up bitterness in his heart. This is huge because a lot of times, you know, when if... If you've got anger and bitterness and resentment that you've held on to, and now your enemy comes into the cave where you're at, do you think that you are going to have what it takes with the spiritual wherewithal to be able not to slit that person's throat? No, you're going to want to take that opportunity. The reason David didn't slit Saul's throat is because he didn't hang on and harbor anger and bitterness and resentment. Rather, he was able to let go of that. And I would encourage you in closing just to be able to do that. F.B. Meyer said this. He said, we win most when we appear to have yielded most. And we gain advantages by refusing to take them wrongfully. The man who can wait for God is a man of power. Solomon said this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So as we close in prayer today and we come to the communion table, rightly and appropriately so, we're reminded that the Father loved us and he forgave us, gave himself for us. And so for us today, it's an opportunity for us to remember we have a God in heaven who loves us who's given us eternal life. And he's able to judge between the person that you're divided from and not. You don't have to take vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. And you want to have the heart of the Lord that can just say, you know what, I'm going to turn you over to God. He can judge between you and me. But God forgave me and he changed my heart and I'm hoping that he can forgive you and change your heart and that's where I'll leave it.